Chapter Forty of the Fortunes of Glencore. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Fortunes of Glencore by Charles James Lever. Chapter Forty. Uptonism. About noon on the following day. Sir Horace Upton and the Colonel drove up to the gates of the villa at Sorrento, and learned, to their no small astonishment, that the princess had taken her departure that morning for Como. If Upton heard these tidings with a sense of pain, nothing in his manner betrayed the sentiment. On the contrary, he proceeded to do the honors of the place like its owner. He showed Harcourt the grounds and the gardens, pointed out all the choice points of view, directed his attention to rare plants and curious animals, and then led him within doors to admire the objects of art and luxury which abounded there. "'And that, I conclude, is a portrait of the princess,' said Harcourt, as he stood before what had been a flattering likeness twenty years back. "'Yes, and a wonderful resemblance,' said Upton, eyeing it through his glass. "'Fatter and fuller now, perhaps. But it was done after an illness.' "'By Jove!' muttered Harcourt. "'She must be beautiful. I don't think I ever saw a handsomer woman.' "'You are only repeating a European verdict.' She is the most perfectly beautiful woman of the continent. So there is no flattery in that picture? Flattery? Why, my dear fellow, these people, the very cleverest of them, can't imagine anything as lovely as that. They can imitate. They never invent real beauty. And clever, you say, too? Esprit enough for a dozen reviewers and fifty fashionable novelists. And as he spoke, he smiled and coquetted with the portrait, as though to say, Don't mind my saying all this to your face. I suppose her history is a very interesting one. Her history, my worthy Harcourt, she has a dozen histories. Such women have a life of politics, a life of literature, a life of the salons, a life of the affections, not to speak of the episodes of jealousy, ambition, triumph, and sometimes defeat, that make up the brilliant web of their existence. Some three or four such people give the whole character and tone to the age they live in. They mold its interests, sway its fashions, suggest its tastes, and they finally rule those who fancy they, they rule mankind. He gabbed, then, it makes one very sorry for poor mankind, muttered Harcourt, with a most honest sincerity of voice. Why should it do so, my good Harcourt? Is the refinement of a woman's intellect a worse guide than the coarser instincts of a man's nature? Would you not yourself 
rather trust your destinies to the fair creature yonder than be left to the legislative mercies of that old gentleman there hardenberg or his fellow on the other side metternich grim-looking fellow that prussian the other one is much better said harcourt rather evading the question i confess i prefer the princess said upton as he bowed before the portrait in deepest courtesy but here comes breakfast i have ordered them to give it to us here that we may enjoy that glorious sea-view while we eat i thought your cook a man of genius upton but this fellow is his master said harcourt as he tasted his soup they are brothers twins too and they have their separate gifts said upton affectedly my fellow they tell me has the finer intelligence but he plays deeply speculates on the bourse and it spoils his nerve harcourt watched the delivery of this speech to catch if there were any signs of raillery in the speaker he felt that there was a kind of mockery in the words but there was none in the manner for there was not any in the mind of him who uttered them my chef resumed upton is a great essayist who must have time for his efforts this fellow is a feuilleton writer who is required to be new and sparkling every day of the year always varied never profound and is this your life of every day said harcourt as he surveyed the splendid room and carried his glance towards the terraced gardens that flanked the sea pretty much this kind of thing sighed upton wearily and no great hardship either i should call it no certainly not said the other hesitatingly to one like myself for instance who has no health for the wear and tear of public life and no heart for its ambitions there is a great deal to like in the quiet retirement of a first-class mission is there really then nothing to do asked harcourt innocently nothing if you don't make it for yourself you can have a harvest if you like to sow otherwise you may lie in fallow the year long the subordinates take the petty miseries of diplomacy for their share the sorrows of insulted englishmen the passport difficulties the custom-house troubles the police insults the secretary calls at the offices of the government carries messages and the answers and i when i have the health for it make my compliments to the king in a cocked hat on his birthday and have twelve grease-pots illuminated over my door to honor the same festival and is that all very nearly in fact when one does anything more they generally do wrong and by a steady persistence in this kind of thing for thirty years you are called a safe man who never compromised his government and are certain to be employed by any party in power i begin to think i might be an envoy myself said harcourt 
no doubt of it we have two or three of your caliber in germany this moment men liked and respected and what is of more consequence well looked upon at the office i don't exactly follow you in that last remark i scarcely expected you should and as little can i make it clear to you no however that in that venerable pile in downing street called the foreign office there is a strange mysterious sentiment partly tradition partly prejudice partly toadyism which bands together all within its walls from the whiskered porter at the door to the essence minister in his bureau into one intellectual conglomerate that judges of every man in the line as they call diplomacy with one accord by that curious tribunal which hears no evidence nor ever utters a sentence each man's merits are weighed and to stand well in the office is better than all the favors of the court or the force of great abilities but i cannot comprehend how mere subordinates the underlings of official life can possibly influence the fortunes of men so much above them picture to yourself the position of an humble guest at a great man's table imagine one to whose pretensions the sentiments of the servants hall are hostile he is served to all appearance like the rest of the company he gets his soup and his fish like those about him and his wine-glass is duly replenished yet what a series of petty mortifications is he the victim of how constantly is he made to feel that he is not in public favor how certain too if he incur an awkwardness to find that his distresses are exposed the servants hall is the office my dear harcourt and its persecutions are equally polished are you a favorite there yourself asked the other slyly a prime favorite they all like me said he throwing himself back in his chair with an air of easy self-satisfaction and harcourt stared at him curious to know whether so astute a man was the dupe of his own self-esteem or merely amusing himself with the simplicity of another ah my good colonel give up the problem it is an enigma far above your powers to solve that nature is too complex for your elucidation in its intricate web no one thread holds the clue but all is complicated crossed and entangled here comes a cabinet messenger again said upton as a courier's calash drove up and a well-dressed and well-looking fellow leapt out ah stanhope how are you said sir horace shaking his hand with what from him was warmth do you know colonel harcourt well frank what news do you bring me the best of news from f o i suppose said upton sighing just so adderley has told the king 
you are the only man capable to succeed him. The press says the same, and the clubs are all with you. Not one of them all, I'd venture to say, has asked whether I have the strength or health for it, said Sir Horace with a voice of pathetic intonation. Why, as we never knew you want energy for whatever fell to your lot to do, we have the same hope still, said Stanhope. So say I, too, cried Harcourt. Like many a good hunter, he'll do his work best when he is properly weighted. It is quite refreshing to listen to you both. Creatures with crocodile digestion talk to a man who suffers nightmare if he overeat a dry biscuit at supper. I tell you frankly, it would be the death of me to take the foreign office. I'd not live through the season. The very dinners would kill me, and then the house, the heat, the turmoil, the worry of opposition, and the jaunting back and forth to Brighton or to Windsor. While he muttered these complaints, he continued to read with great rapidity the letters which Stanhope had brought him, and which, despite all his practised coolness, had evidently afforded him pleasure in the perusal. Adderley bore it, continued he, just because he was a mere machine, wound up to play off so many despatches like so many tunes, and then he permitted a degree of interference on the king's part I never could have suffered. And he liked to be addressed by the king of Prussia as dear Adderley. But what do I care for all these vanities? Have I not seen enough of the thing they call the great world? Is not this retreat better and dearer to me than all the glare and crash of London? or all the pomp and splendor of Windsor? By Jove, I suspect you are right after all, said Harcourt, with an honest energy of voice. Were I younger and stronger in health, perhaps, said Upton, this might have tempted me. Perhaps I can picture to myself what I might have made of it. For you may perceive, George, these people have done nothing, they have been pouring hot water on the tea-leaves Pitt left them, no more. And you'd have a brewing of your own, I've no doubt, responded the other. I'd at least have foreseen the time when this compact, this holy alliance, should become impossible, when the developed intelligence of Europe would seek something else from their rulers than a well-concocted scheme of repression. I'd have provided for the hour when England must either break with her own people or her allies, and I'd have inaugurated a new policy based upon the enlarged views and extended intelligence of mankind. I'm not certain that I quite apprehend you, muttered Harcourt. No matter, but you can surely understand that if a set of mere mediocrities have saved England. A batch of clever men might have done something more. She came out of the last war the acknowledged head of Europe. Does she now hold that place? And what will she be at 
the next great struggle. England is as great as she ever was, cried Harcourt boldly. Greater in nothing is she than in the implicit credulity of her people, sighed Upton. I only wish I could have the same faith in my physicians that she has in hers. By the way, Stanhope, what of that new fellow they have got at St. Leonard's? They tell me he builds you up in some preparation of gypsum, so that you can't move or stir, and that the perfect repose thus imparted to the system is the highest order of restorative. They were just about to try him for manslaughter when I left England, said Stanhope, laughing. As often the fate of genius in these days, as in more barbarous times, said Upton. I read his pamphlet with much interest. If you were going back, Harcourt, I'd have begged of you to try him. And I'm forced to say I'd have refused you flatly. Yet it is precisely creatures of robust constitution, like you, that should submit themselves to these trials for the sake of humanity. Frail organizations like mine cannot brave these ordeals. What are they talking of in town? Any gossip afloat? The change of ministry is the only topic. Glencore's affair has worn itself out. What was that about Glencore? asked Upton, half indolently. A strange story. One can scarcely believe it. They say that Glencore, hearing of the king's great anxiety to be rid of the queen, asked an audience of his majesty, and actually suggested, as the best possible expedient, that his majesty should deny the marriage. They add that he reasoned the case so cleverly, and with such consummate craft and skill, it was with the greatest difficulty that the king could be persuaded he was deranged. Some say his majesty was outraged beyond endurance. Others that he was vastly amused and laughed immoderately over it. And the world, how do they pronounce upon it? There are two great parties, one for Glencore's sanity and the other against it. But, as I said before, the cabinet changes have absorbed all interest latterly, and the Viscount and his case are forgotten. And when I started, the great question was, who was to have the foreign office? I believe I could tell them one who will not, said Upton, with a melancholy smile. Dine with me, both of you, to-day, at seven. No company, you know. There is an opera in the evening, and my box is at your service, if you like to go. And so, till then. And with a little gesture of the hand, he waved an adieu, and glided from the room. I'm sorry he's not up to the work of office, said Harcourt. There's plenty of ability in him. The best man we have, said Stanhope. So they say at the office. He's gone to lie down, I take it. He seemed much exhausted. What say you to a walk back to town? I ask nothing better, said Stanhope. And they started for Naples. End of chapter 40
Recording by Linda Andrus.